So I want to speak uh, this morning under the subject of one big question. Uh, There are many big questions. Here are some big questions. These are called ponderisms. If a synchronized swimmer drowns during a competition, do they all have to do it? (laughs) How much deeper would the oceans be if sponges didn't live there? See, there's mental images with these, isn't there? If olive oil comes from olives and almond oil comes from almonds, where does baby oil come from? If all the audience is a stage, no, sorry, if all the world is a stage, where does the audience sit? If butterflies only live, why do butterflies only live a short time when eating cabbage is supposed to be good for you? How does the guy who drives the snowplow get to work in the morning? Why are apartments always stuck together? What's another word for thesaurus? Does a fish have to wait an hour after eating before going swimming? (laughs) And finally, if men and women evolved from monkeys and apes, why do we still have monkeys and apes? From time to time, people do ask big questions, and uh, you may be here for the first time today, maybe you have some big questions, uh, questions about God, Jesus, religion, church, and uh, the true meaning of life, and uh, as I've said a few moments ago, on the 17th, which is Tuesday week, we are starting the Alpha course here, and Alpha is a brilliant opportunity to drill down deep into some of these questions and challenges, and uh, so with that in mind, let's take a look at Jesus today and uh, the big question that he asked and there are, he asked many questions actually but there is one particular question that I'd like us to focus on today and uh, we're going to read it from the Bible and uh, I think I've probably got control of this here yeah great okay when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples who do people say the son of man is just one of the names that Jesus gave himself the son of man They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. Jesus takes his disciples on a 25-mile journey north. It's actually the furthest north that they ever travelled with him, this place called Caesarea Philippi. And it would appear from the story and the surrounding stories that Jesus relocates with his disciples principally to ask them this big question, who am I? Who do the people say that I am? He stood them in an iconic place and asked them to define his true identity. Very often you will find that Jesus says something or does something or goes somewhere that is quite poignant in order to create the third dimension. 
in order to put a context around his message. You didn't find Jesus very often in religious buildings. Very few times he communicated anything in a religious context. It was normally up a mountain, on the street, in someone's home, in a marketplace. Very rarely, although there were one or two occasions, did you find Jesus in a religious place. I go to Normandy quite a lot, particularly the the beaches of Normandy, the D-Day landing beaches, and some of you know that, some of you have been with me, and I take groups of guys mainly, um, lots of times, I've done it with groups of over 100 and I've done it with one person, Uh, lots and lots of times, and the reason why I do that is because I help people to understand um, something of the themes of courage, sacrifice, uh, leadership and stature. And when you're walking in the footsteps of heroes, it's a really good way to do that. Because what we experience, we take into our own souls, our lifestyles, our thinking. If we just hear something, it's normally not enough. Now, Caesarea Philippi is at the headwaters of the River Jordan. It's at the, Mount of, it's at the foot of Mount Hermon. And this is the place that Jesus selected to ask his disciples this big question. So why is the question? What is it about this place as opposed to all the other places in that region? Jesus went to many places. What was it about this particular location, this city, that he selected in order to put a context or a backdrop around this question that he wanted to ask? As is the case with Normandy, you need to overlay the maps and the history in order to get an understanding of the true context of what Jesus is saying. This once great city of Philippi is now, of Caesarea Philippi is now totally uninhabited. It is uh, fully excavated. It is an archaeological site in the Golan Heights. And it's said that they have found the remains of 14 separate temples in that one location. But 2,000 years ago, this city, this place was a It was a location where multiple religions converged upon the same point. It was the place where Pan, the god of nature, was worshipped. It's where we get our word pantheism. It was also in this city that King Herod built a temple and a giant marble statue in in honour of Caesar Augustus, the Roman Roman emperor, who for many people, he was God. He was the God. And certainly he insisted on being called that. Certainly for Herod, Caesar would have been his God. The Roman emperor was everything to the people. A place full to the brim and overflowing with altars and obelisks and mausoleums, honoring the Syrian and the Greek gods of that day. Of all places in that region, Jesus, this carpenter rabbi, takes his hand-picked group of apprentices to this location And he says, who am I? Who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? It's as if Jesus dramatically positions himself in front of this backdrop of the world's religions. And he asks to be compared with them. And he expects the verdict to be given in his favor. 
Now, I don't believe Jesus was looking for status or encouragement. You know, the cross was coming fast. This is really, the curtain is falling upon his, his, his uh, public ministry. This three-year period, this dramatic reenactment of the plans and purposes of God that have been spoken about for thousands of years. Jesus comes and he lives it out. 330 Old Testament prophetic words and pictures of the Messiah fulfilled in just 33 years. Most of it in the three years of his public life. But the curtain is coming to an end of this great drama. And so Jesus takes his disciples to this place. This is not some kind of high five graduation moment for these guys he's not looking for adulation Jesus wasn't big on that sort of stuff but after all the the miracles and the changed lives who really understands this big story the the meta-narrative the overarching message who really gets it who on the street gets the context of who Jesus really is. They've seen the miracles. They've seen the dead raised. They've seen these amazing crowds being drawn on the street. They've seen the opponents of Jesus coming out just to connect with his message. Jesus is such big news. But who really understands what it's about? Who's got it in their hearts? Who has caught the vision of this man? And I think he's also asking His disciples, who will follow in my footsteps? Who will live for truth beyond the crowds? Who will embrace the cost? Who will embrace the sacrifice? Beyond that sense of being together for three years and traveling and living in community and seeing these incredible things happen, who will take the challenge for themselves? Who will be the baton carriers into the future? Very interesting too that Jesus said who do the ordinary people say that I am? The people of the street. Who do those people say that I am? He didn't want to know who the Pharisees thought he was. He wanted to know what the people of the street thought he was. The ordinary people. Certainly mostly in Jesus' time. And Paul picks this up actually in Corinthians. He says not many of the wise and great follow Jesus. And if you look throughout 2,000 years of history, it is predominantly the ordinary people who have followed Jesus. Not many of the world's great, some have, but statistically not many, have followed Jesus. But it is the ordinary people that still Jesus seems to attract more than most. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because they are a little bit uncluttered a little bit more available to respond to a life-changing message, I don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus always had a place for the ordinary people, the ones that have been pushed around, the ones that were mistreated. So what's the response of this one big question that Jesus asked in this big location of Caesarea Philippi? Well, there are three answers that are put forward as examples as to what the street people are saying about Jesus. The first one is John the Baptist. So what was it about John the Baptist that made people 
connect Jesus with him? What was it about Jesus that made the people on the street say, you're just like John the Baptist? Well, let's take a quick look at this, this guy's life. John the Baptist was a man of, of, of boldness and strength. He, he didn't lack the courage of his convictions. He was someone that was prepared to put it out there and to stand for truth to the peril of his own life. He wasn't someone who played it safe. He wasn't someone who just went with the status quo. He was prepared to offend even the most powerful people. This is what John the Baptist said. This is what he said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. John 3 verse 2. Even the Pharisees came out on the street to hear that. Who is this guy? Who is this wild man that just stands in our places and speaks as if he knows better than we do about truth and God and the Jewish tradition? Who is this person who is announcing the arrival of somebody? Who is he? But rather than giving these highly respected guests a seat on the platform party, John the Baptist turned on them. Why don't you turn around and live differently, you bunch of snakes? That's what he said. Read it. Why don't you live differently? Why don't you speak less and act more? His next stop was the uh, royal palace of King Herod himself. And he gets right in the face of King Herod and questions his morality. No wonder he got thrown into prison. The Pharisees were highly threatened by John the Baptist and Herod was his wow. It is said that Mary, Queen of Scots, feared the prayers of John Knox more than the whole armies of England. So something about this man John, something about his spiritual energy and his power and his boldness and his courage caused the people to make the connection. So clearly there was something in Jesus' demeanour in his actions, in his lifestyle, in the way that he trained and mentored other people that made people say, you're quite like John the Baptist. There was a connection that was being made by the ordinary people. If Jesus was the softly spoken introvert that a lot of us have been brought up to imagine, I don't think they would have made a connection with this guy John, not at all. Something about his force and his power and his presence made them say, you're just like that guy. So who else did they put forward as an option as to who Jesus might be? Well, the second thing that was said was that he was Elijah the prophet. So what was the similarity between those two, Jesus and Elijah? Well, Elijah was someone who that made the people choose. He was someone who honoured the true God and set about bringing down the false gods. He was another man who laid it on the line. He wasn't just someone who did the religious thing. He was abrasive, he was confrontational, but in a, in a good way. 
He made people choose. This is what Elijah said. How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. Elijah went after the false gods and Jesus did exactly the same. He set his face against the things that weren't true, the things that brought people, took people into prisons, into emotional and spiritual prisons. Jesus reserved his harshest words to religious people. But today we have this image that Jesus was so sort of benevolent and sort of warm and this sort of milky sort of sense of goodness. That wasn't the Jesus of the Bible at all. Jesus was someone who, he did lay it on the line, he made people choose. He wasn't prepared just to allow things to continue as they were. He interrupted religious processes and protocols and procedures. And Elijah did the same thing. No wonder the street people who understood their history, this is a thousand years ago for these people, but they knew about the great prophet Elijah. They knew what the script said. They knew what the Torah said. They'd read the stories. They'd been brought up to understand what Elijah was about. No wonder when they said, when Jesus said, who do the people say that? They say, well, some of them think you're a reincarnation of Elijah. Because he had some of those qualities. He had the guts and determination to put his own self on the line in order to establish that there was only one God. There was a true God. But he also challenged people's commitment, didn't he? He said, make a choice. Don't just talk about it, do it. If you want to follow God, follow God. But if you're into that stuff, at least do it with sincerity. At least do it with a whole heart. Don't waver between two opinions. Don't sit on the fence. Don't talk the talk but not walk the walk. Challenging character, I would think. Probably why a lot of these prophets seem to live quite lonely lives. I wouldn't think they had a lot of mates. Still others said... We think you're the prophet Jeremiah. Well, what did Jeremiah do? What was he like? Well, he was very different to Elijah. But there was clearly something about what he did and the way he lived that people went, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're a little bit like Jeremiah. I wonder if you're Jeremiah come back. So we have got three different people being mentioned by the same group of people that are observing the same facts, the same uh, uh, miracles, the same teachings, the same presence that Jesus is creating, people are picking up different threads. So what was the message that Jeremiah heard from God? Well, this is what Jeremiah said. Okay, could you just push that one on for me? I, I seem to have lost the... What's the plot there? He said this, I have loved you with an everlasting love and I have drawn you with unfailing kindness 
He said that to the people living in Jerusalem in a time of great prosperity. But he said, this is going to be short-lived unless you turn. And sure enough, the destruction of Jerusalem wasn't far behind what he said. But Jesus did that as well. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem. So there is a synergy, there's a connection. So they're seeing the compassion of Jeremiah. They're seeing his aching longing for the people, particularly of the city of Jerusalem in that particular context. And Jesus seemed to do the same thing. The shortest verse in the Bible, two words, Jesus wept. Jesus was portraying the emotion of a father. It wasn't just about truth. It wasn't just about hot talks with great illustrations. There was something of the compassion and the emotion even of God being demonstrated through what Jesus did. And some of the people connected with that. So their example, their, the person that they put forward was Jeremiah, who was often called the weeping prophet. So what happened to, to Jeremiah? Well, just like John the Baptist, he was thrown into prison. It's very interesting how the radicals often end up behind bars. You can see it all over the world. Many institutions, including the church actually, historically at times, has been fairly successful in spewing out the radical men and women. But I guess the problem is this, when, you are, when you're confronted with something that looks like truth, you really only have two options. You either have to yield to it and make the change, or you've got to remove it. You've got to silence it, you've got to get rid of it, you can't coexist with it because it's just a little bit too uncomfortable and Christ was just like that Jesus was just like that you know and for those of us who are Christians and we get to know what happened in the end you know there was a sense that the cross was an inevitability because Jesus didn't come just to live out a message he didn't just come with another set of ideas into a very complex religious environment and Caesarea Philippi the Syrian and the Greek gods are looking over as Jesus says that. It wasn't a religious environment that Jesus came into. And he didn't just come with another idea, another option. You've tried that, try this. That's good, but this is better. That wasn't what Jesus came to do at all. He said some really provocative things, didn't he? He didn't say, I am an interesting way. He said, I am the way. I am the way. Jesus put himself forward as the truth. Truth, I guess that's okay. But if you think you already have the truth, you are the truth, that's not going to make you very popular. So these three people that Jesus was compared with by the ordinary folk, and maybe these words sum up something of what they saw. Sorry, if you could push that one on as well. I don't know what I've done if I switched it off or something. It's gone. So the three people, John the Baptist, Elijah and Jeremiah. For me, I think John the Baptist, if there is a word which describes something of what he did, I would say it is confrontation. That's really what John the Baptist was about. He was just trying to disturb the status quo ahead of Jesus' arrival. 
confrontation. Elijah, I think there's something in there about challenge or maybe choice. He's pushing people to the point that they will, be, will, will have to make a decision about whether to serve God or to serve someone else or something else. Confrontation and challenge. And what about Jeremiah? Compassion. Challenge, confrontation, and compassion. Three things embodied in three people that made the people say, that's who I think you are. So after all the the options have been put out there, Jesus personalizes it to his friends, his disciples. And he says, okay, thanks for the feedback. What about you? What do you think? Because you've lived as part of the inner circle. You've seen me and you've lived with me and you've understood and we've talked and we've and I've mentored you and I've trained you and I've given you the context and the history and you've seen me in my weak moments and you've seen me in the elation of the miracles and the changed lives and dead people coming back to life again and families being restored who do you say that I am and then this incredible moment which you know is just one of the historical touchstones of the Christian faith when Peter steps up and he announces that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yeah, sure, he resembles all the other three for good reason. But he's greater than all of them put together. But Peter in saying, you are the Christ, he is... He's understanding the timeline. He's understanding what has gone before and this, this sense of this climactic moment of revelation towards which all history have been pointing. Jesus was looking for a lot more than people saying, you're a good guy, Jesus. You're one of us. We like you. You fit with us. You like our people. You fight our battles. You're an advocate of the man on the street. Jesus wasn't looking for that, nor did he need that. He was looking for something else. As I said a moment ago, he was looking for the people that really understood the moment that they were living in. You see, the whole of Israel's history was caught up, and it still is actually, with the longing for the Christ. Every rabbi believed it. Every family believed it. Every page of the Old Testament was full of it and pointed to it. All looking for the, the arrival of Christ. This one who would come from heaven and would vindicate all that God had said throughout history. John 8 said that before Abraham was, I am. John 1 says before It says, in the beginning there was the word. And Colossians said, before the stars in the universe, there was the Christ. That was the whole context that was surrounding the coming of Jesus, the Christ. You see, 
The one big question for these people was not, is the Christ coming? That wasn't the big question. They knew that. The big question is, was Jesus the Christ? That's the big question. Not, is the Christ coming, but is this him? Or is he still to come? And there are millions of Jews around the world who would say, yes, he is still to come. Otherwise, they would be Messianic Jews. They would be Christians. Many are, but many aren't. And throughout the Alpha program, we're going to be really wrestling with this stuff in great detail and with a lot of fun as well. As we start to look at the evidence for Christ and we look at the evidence whether Jesus was who he says he was or whether he was someone else or whether he was fictitious and whether the whole thing is an irrelevance. We're going to be looking at that. But it, it isn't politically correct in our day or in Jesus' day to present one option as the only option. It's not popular. It's, it's not what people say at dinner parties. But Jesus did it. It's, that's about the size of it with Jesus. He, he, he stood in Caesarea Philippi, as I said, with this, this, this enormous historical and cultural backdrop where all the gods were represented. The menu was just presented. You know, in the, the rock faces and on the floor with the temples and these pictures that I put up, this, this is Caesarea Philippi. These, these little images here, big images, 20-foot images. That's what it was like. So when people say, well, yeah, I kind of probably believe God exists, but it's all a bit dated, isn't it? It's all, you know, 2,000 years old, you know, old people in old buildings talking about an old book. It's incredibly relevant, incredibly connected, incredibly current. There's very little that you will find in the life and works and words of Jesus that is an irrelevance today. It's all incredibly current. Same place, sorry, different place, different time, but same context, same struggles, same issues. Real people, real challenges, real brokenness, real families, real tragedy. And into that, Jesus spoke and he presented himself not as an option but as the answer to the human problem. The greatest problem I think people have today is meaninglessness. It's a lack of purpose. Somehow there's something in us that looks for truth and searches for truth even though we know that it's pretty unpalatable to suggest that there is a way. But there is a way. There is one way. There is a truth. It doesn't mean that everything else is meaningless. It doesn't mean that people who do good works and live good lives somehow that that's just, you know, phony. Of course it isn't. Goodness is good for, because it's good. It's great when people are kind and not mean. It's great when people are friendly and not unfriendly. It's great when food banks feed the poor, whether they're Christian or something else. Goodness is goodness. But when it comes to truth, I don't believe it's quite the same. 
Now, when I became a Christian, I, I was quite inquisitive. I'd read stuff. I'm not a massive reader, but I'd, you know, I'd read all sorts of stuff. I'd watched stuff. And I was genuinely interested and challenged about this whole area of spirituality. I was not sympathetic to the Christian position. I wasn't. But when I looked at Jesus, I looked at the stories of the New Testament, I was staggered at the humanity of Jesus. That somehow it was powerful, it was life-changing, it did demand my life, it demanded a response, but it was incredibly real at the same time. Jesus took, went at great lengths to connect and be authentic. But he laid it on the line. John the Baptist did it, Elijah did it. And people thought, you're just like those guys. So although he was compassionate, although he reminded many people of Jeremiah, there was a heart behind all that he did. He was pretty bold as well. G.K. Chesterton said this, Tolerance is the virtue of the man who believes nothing. You see, two plus two equals four. It's not five. It's not just over three. It's four. That's not arrogant. It's true. It's true. If we're sick, if we've got a problem and we go to our doctor, we don't want the doctor to be politically correct. We want him to tell us the truth. We want him to solve the problem, to sort out the problem. If a pilot is landing an aeroplane in a storm, we don't want him to think about what everyone else might want to do in that situation. Land the plane! Do what you do. We're not really interested in you being tolerant right now. Please could you land the plane? Certain situations and scenarios in our lives do cause us to react in a certain way. And I got to a place when I was, you know, I'd been, I'd been telling the story, like I did the Alpha thing, and I was with youth on Friday night, I told a little bit about my story in both situations. When I was 16, I went to hear a guy speak in a church in Worthing. I was not a Christian. I went with my friends to disrupt. And this guy was speaking, and I just felt, and this is how it felt, I felt he put his finger in my chest and he asked me who I thought Jesus was. And I was in a big crowd. And I was offended, I was cross, I was irritated. But I just couldn't escape it. I couldn't escape it. You know, and for that four-year period between 16 and 20, they were turbulent years for me. As I wrestled with being a Christian, but quite like the idea of being something else as well. And then when I was 20, I, I, just, I just nailed it. I just knew that I... I couldn't live my life just with one foot in one place and one foot in the other. And I realized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. That he was the truth, the answer. And although I didn't understand everything, and I still don't, I knew who Jesus was. And you know... I guess for us today, you know, there, there are, I think there are probably a number of people here that are still uh, undecided. Maybe you've been in the orbit of the church and of the Christian message for some time. 
But you, you've not actually taken that step. You've not actually said, yeah, actually, I'm going to, I'm, I'm in. I'm going to do this. I'm going to ask God not just to speak to me. I'm not just asking for him to, you know, give me some sort of sign. I'm actually going to take that step of faith where I'm going to cross over the chicken line and actually ask him to come into my life. That's the key. That's what makes the difference. It's incredibly easy for us to coexist with something, even to coexist with truth, actually. But we don't take the step because we fear of what this truth would do to us. Because it is disturbing. You know, we have to make different choices and better choices. Because the truth becomes part of our lives and we live with different values and with different different priorities. And, you know, the reason why, you know, why I'm speaking today is because of the timing of the Alpha course. And I, I really want you to be there. I want you to... Bring your friends if you're part of the church here, and I want you to come if you're not part of the church, or if you're not sure whether you're part of the church, or you just know someone and you're here and you maybe you're here on Friday. I want you to come. I want you to be a part of it. Why? Because I think it will change your life. That's why. Not because I want to see lots of people. I would have loved to have seen twice as many people that were there on Friday, but that's just me. I said to now, you know, if the whole of the the whole of this bottom area was jammed to capacity and there were 50 people in the, in the balcony, I would have looked up at the empty seats on the balcony. So, you know, I'm never satisfied. <laughs> and I don't want to ever be satisfied. You know, until this building is extended and still full, I will not be satisfied because I want everybody to hear this. But I want you to come to Alpha. But you, you, you can make that choice today. You can do it right now. You don't need to wait for a course to do that. God's not like that. And if you're prepared to stand before God and ask him to come into your life, you will be changed. I promise you that. You will be changed. From this moment on, you will be changed. You will feel different, live different, and there will be a regeneration that will begin in your life from the minute you open yourself up to God. As an act of your will, you stand before God and say, I receive Christ. I receive Christ into my life. I don't understand it all, I don't get it all, I don't know what it will mean. But I want to take that step because I don't think I'm going to get any closer than where I am right now.